0: section thirty-two of the rainbow this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by christine the rainbow by d h lawrence chapter eleven part three the next afternoon when he came prowling she went with him across to the church Her father was gradually gathering in anger against him, her mother was hardening in anger against her, but the parents were naturally tolerant in action. They went together across the churchyard, Ursuline Skrebensky, and ran to hiding in the church. It was dimmer in there than the sunny afternoon outside, but the mellow glow among the bowed stone was very sweet. The windows burned in ruby and in blue, they made magnificent auras to their bower of secret stone. What a perfect place for a rendezvous, he said in a hushed voice, glancing around. She too glanced around the familiar interior. The dimness and stillness chilled her. But her eyes lit up with daring. Here, here she would assert her indomitable gorgeous female self here. Here she would open her female flower like a flame, in this dimness that was more passionate than light. They hung apart a moment then willfully turned to each other for the desired contact. She put her arms round him, she cleaved her body to his, and with her hands pressed upon his shoulders, on his back, she seemed to feel right through him, to know his young, tense body right through. And it was so fine, so hard, yet so exquisitely subject and under her control. She reached him her mouth and drank his full kiss, drank it fuller and fuller. And it was so good, it was very, very good, She seemed to be filled with his kiss, filled as if she had drunk strong, glowing sunshine. She glowed all inside. The sunshine seemed to beat upon her heart underneath. She had drunk so beautifully. She drew away and looked at him radiant, exquisitely, glowingly beautiful and satisfied, but radiant as an illumined cloud. To him this was bitter, that she was so radiant and satisfied. She laughed upon him, blind to him so full of her own bliss never doubting but that he was the same as she was and radiant as an angel she went with him out of the church as if her feet were beams of light that walked on flowers for footsteps he went beside her his soul clenched his body unsatisfied was she going to make this easy triumph over him for him there was now no self-bliss only pain and confused anger it was high summer and the hay harvest was almost over it would be finished on Saturday. On Saturday, however, Skrebensky was going away. He could not stay any longer. Having decided to go, he became very tender and loving to her, kissing her gently with such soft, sweet, insidious closeness that they were both of them intoxicated. The very last Friday of his stay, he met her coming out of school and took her to tea in the town. Then he had a motor car to drive her home, Her excitement at riding in a motor car was greatest of all. He, too, was very proud of this last coup. He saw Ursula kindle and flare up to the romance of the situation. She raised her head like a young horse, snuffing with wild delight. The car swerved round a corner, and Ursula was swung against Skrebensky. The contact made her aware of him. With a swift, foraging impulse, she sought for his hand and clasped it in her own, so close, so combined, as if they were two children. The wind blew in on Ursula's face, the mud flew in a soft, wild rush from the wheels, the country was blackish green, with the silver of new hay here and there, and masses of trees under a silver gleaming sky. Her hand tightened on his, with a new consciousness, troubled. They did not speak for some time, but sat, hand fast, with averted shining faces, and every now and then the car swung her against him, and they waited for the motion to bring them together yet they stared out of the windows, mute. She saw the familiar country racing by, but now it was no familiar country, it was Wonderland. There was the hemlock stone standing on its grassy hill. Strange it looked on this wet early summer evening, remote in a magic land. Some rooks were flying out of the trees. Ah! If only she and Skrebensky could get out, dismount into this enchanted land where nobody had ever been before. Then they would be enchanted people, They would put off the dull customary self if she were wandering there on that hill slope under a silvery changing sky in which many rooks melted like hurrying showers of blots if they could walk past the wetted hay swaths smelling the early evening and pass into the wood where the honeysuckle scent was sweet on the cold tang in the air and showers of drops fell when one brushed a bow cold and lovely on the face but she was here with him in the car close to him and the wind was rushing on her lifted, eager face, blowing back the hair. He turned and looked at her, at her face clean as a chiseled thing, her hair chiseled back by the wind, her fine nose keen and lifted. It was agony to him, seeing her swift and clean-cut and virgin. He wanted to kill himself and throw his detested carcass at her feet. His desire to turn round on himself and rend himself was an agony to him. Suddenly, she glanced at him. He seemed to be crouching towards her, reaching. He seemed to wince between the brows. But instantly, seeing her lighted eyes and radiant face, his expression changed. His old, reckless laugh shone to her. She pressed his hand in utter delight, and he abided. And suddenly she stooped and kissed his hand, bent her head and caught it to her mouth in generous homage, and the blood burned in him. Yet he remained still. He made no move. She started. They were swinging into Kossithae. Skrebinski was going to leave her, but it was all so magic, her cup was so full of bright wine, her eyes could only shine. He tapped and spoke to the man. The car swung up by the yew trees. She gave him her hand and said goodbye, naive and brief as a schoolgirl, and she stood watching him go, her face shining. The fact of his driving on meant nothing to her. She was so filled by her own bright ecstasy. She did not see him go, for she was filled with light, which was of him. Bright, with an amazing light as she was, how could she miss him? In her bedroom, she threw her arms in the air in clear pain of magnificence. Oh, it was her transfiguration, she was beyond herself. She wanted to fling herself into all the hidden brightness of the air. It was there, it was there, if she could but meet it. But the next day she knew he had gone. Her glory had partly died down, but never from her memory. It was too real. Yet it was gone by, leaving a wistfulness— A deeper yearning came into her soul, a new reserve. She shrank from touch and question. She was very proud, but very new and very sensitive. Oh, that no one should lay hands on her. She was happier running on by herself. Oh, it was a joy to run along the lanes without seeing things, yet being with them. It was such a joy to be alone with all one's riches. The holidays came when she was free. She spent most of her time running on by herself, curled up in a squirrel place in the garden, lying in a hammock in the coppice, while the birds came near, near, so near. Oh, in rainy weather she flitted to the march, and lay hidden with her book in a hayloft. All the time she dreamed of him, sometimes definitely, but when she was happiest, only vaguely. He was the warm coloring of her dreams, he was the hot blood beating within them. When she was less happy, out of sorts, she pondered over his appearance, his clothes, the buttons with his regimental badge, which he had given her. Or she tried to imagine his life in barracks, or she conjured up a vision of herself as she appeared in his eyes. His birthday was in August, and she spent some pains on making him a cake. She felt that it would not be in good taste for her to give him a present. Their correspondence was brief. "'mostly in exchange of postcards, not at all frequent, "'but with her cake she must send him a letter. "'Dear Anton, "'the sunshine has come back specially for your birthday, I think. "'I made the cake myself, "'and wish you many happy returns of the day. "'Don't eat it if it is not good. "'Mother hopes you will come and see us when you are near enough. "'I am your sincere friend, Ursula Brangwen.' "'It bored her to write a letter even to him.' After all, writing words on paper had nothing to do with him and her. The fine weather had set in. The cutting machine went on from dawn till sunset, chattering round the fields. She heard from Skrebensky. He too was on duty in the country, on Salisbury Plain. He was now a second lieutenant in a field troop. He would have a few days off shortly and would come to the marsh for the wedding. Fred Brangwen was going to marry a schoolmistress out of Ilkeston as soon as corn harvest was at an end. The dim blue and gold of a hot, sweet autumn saw the close of the corn harvest. To Ursula, it was as if the world had opened its softest, purest flower, its chicory flower, its meadow saffron. The sky was blue and sweet. The yellow leaves down the lane seemed like free, wandering flowers as they chittered round the feet, making a keen, poignant, almost unbearable music to her heart, and the scents of autumn were like a summer madness to her. She fled away from the little purple-red button chrysanthemums, like a frightened dryad. The bright yellow little chrysanthemums smelled so strong, her feet seemed to dither in a drunken dance. Then her uncle Tom appeared, always like the cynical Bacchus in the picture. He would have a jolly wedding, a harvest supper and a wedding feast in one, a tent in the home clothes, and a band for dancing, and a great feast out of doors. Fred demurred, but Tom must be satisfied. Also Laura, a handsome, clever girl the bride, she also must have a great and jolly feast. It appealed to her educated sense. She had been to Salisbury Training College, knew folk songs and Morris dancing. So the preparations were begun, directed by Tom Brangwen. The marquee was set up on the home close. Two large bonfires were prepared. Musicians were hired, feast made ready. Skrebinski was to come, arriving in the morning. Ursula had a new white dress of soft crepe. And a white hat she liked to wear white with her black hair and clear golden skin she looked southern or rather tropical like a creole she wore no color whatsoever she trembled that day as she appeared to go down to the wedding she was to be a bridesmaid skrebensky would not arrive till afternoon the wedding was at two o'clock as the wedding party returned home skrebensky stood in the parlor at the marsh through the window he saw tom Brangwen, who who is best man "'coming up the garden path most elegant "'in cutaway coat and white slip and spats, "'with Ursula laughing on his arm. "'Tom Brangwen was handsome, "'with his womanish colouring and dark eyes "'and black close-cut moustache, "'but there was something subtly coarse "'and suggestive about him for all his beauty. "'His strange, bestial nostrils opened so hard and wide, "'and his well-shaped head almost disquieting in its nakedness, "'rather bald from the front, "'and all its soft fullness betrayed.' Skrebensky saw the man rather than the woman. She saw only the slender, unchangeable youth waiting there, inscrutable, like her fate. He was beyond her, with his loose, slightly horsey appearance that made him seem very manly and foreign. Yet his face was smooth and soft and impressionable. She shook hands with him, and her voice was like the rousing of a bird startled by the dawn. "'Isn't it nice,' she cried, "'to have a wedding?' There were bits of colored confetti lodged on her dark hair. Again the confusion came over him, as if he were losing himself and becoming all vague, undefined, and coate. Yet he wanted to be hard, manly, horsey, and he followed her. There was a light tea and the guests scattered. The real feast was for the evening. Ursula walked out with Skrebensky through the stackyard to the fields and up the embankment to the canal side. The new corn stacks were big and golden as they went by. An army of white geese marched aside in braggart protest. Ursula was light as a white ball of down. Skrebensky drifted beside her, indefinite. His old form loosened, and another self, grey, vague, drifting out as from a bud. They talked lightly of nothing. The blue way of the canal wound softly between the autumn hedges, on towards the greenness of a small hill. On the left was the whole black agitation of colliery and railway, and the town which rose on its hill, the church tower topping all. The round white dot of the clock on the tower was distinct in the evening light. That way, Ursula felt, was the way to London, through the grim, alluring seethe of the town. On the other hand was the evening mellow over the green water meadows, and the winding alder trees beside the river, and the pale stretches of stubble beyond. There the evening glowed softly, and even a peewit was flapping in solitude and peace. Ursula and Anton Skrebinski walked along the ridge of the canal between. The berries on the hedges were crimson and bright red, above the leaves. The glow of evening and the wheeling of the solitary peewit and the faint cry of the birds came to meet the shuffling noise of the pits, the dark, fuming stress of the town opposite, and they too walked the blue strip of waterway, the ribbon of sky between. He was looking, Ursula thought, very beautiful, because of a flush of sunburn on his hands and face. He was telling her how he had learned to shoe horses and select cattle fit for killing. "'Do you like to be a soldier?' she asked. "'I am not exactly a soldier,' he replied. "'But you only do things for wars,' she said. "'Yes. Would you like to go to war?' "I. Well, it would be exciting if there were war I would want to go.' A strange, distracted feeling came over her, a sense of potent unrealities. Why would you want to go? I should be doing something. It would be genuine. It's a sort of toy life as it is. But what would you be doing if you went to war? I would be making railways or bridges, working like a nigger. But you'd only make them to be pulled down again when the armies had done with them. It seems just as much a game. If you call war a game... What is it? It's about the most serious business there is, fightin'. A sense of hard separateness came over her. Why is fighting more serious than anything else? She asked. You either kill or get killed, and I suppose it is serious enough, killing. But when you're dead, you don't matter any more. she said. He was silenced for a moment. But the result matters, he said. It matters whether we settle the Mardi or not. "'Not to you, nor me. "'We don't care about Khartoum. "'You want to have room to live in, "'and somebody has to make room. "'But I don't want to live in the desert of Sahara, do you?' "'She replied, laughing with antagonism. "'I don't, but we've got to back up those who do. "'Why have we? "'Where's the nation if we don't?' "'But we aren't the nation. "'There are heaps of other people who are the nation. "'They might say they weren't either.' "'Well, if everybody said it, there wouldn't be a nation. "'But I should still be myself,' she asserted brilliantly. "'You wouldn't be yourself if there were no nation. "'Why not? "'Because you'd just be a prey to everybody and anybody.' "'How a prey? "'They'd come and take everything you'd got.' "'Well, they couldn't take much even then. "'I don't care what they take. "'I'd rather have a robber who carried me off than a millionaire "'who gave me everything you can buy.' "'That's because you are a romanticist.' "'Yes, I am. I want to be romantic. "'I hate houses that never go away, and people just living in the houses. "'It's all so stiff and stupid. I hate soldiers. "'They are stiff and wooden. What do you fight for, really?' "'I would fight for the nation.' "'For all that you aren't the nation. What would you do for yourself?' "'I belong to the nation, and must do my duty by the nation.' But when it didn't need your services in particular, when there is no fighting, what would you do then? He was irritated. I would do what everybody else does. What? Nothing. I would be in readiness for when I was needed. The answer came in exasperation. It seems to me, she answered, as if you weren't anybody, as if there weren't anybody there where you are. Are you anybody, really? You seem like nothing to me. End of section 32